uh, at Hartford Seminary. But I also came into teaching some courses that had been taught there for some time. And one of them was a course called um, uh, the Quran. I think it was called the Quran in its place in Muslim society. Something like that. A version of the subtitle of my book. And it took me a number of years to really understand how to teach my students. My students to find that sweet spot between um, really engaging with the religious tradition, feeling free to speak from the tradition, but also to be comprehensible to people who weren't, you know, who aren't Muslim. People of faith, religious people who, have, who study scripture and, and theology and law, but from other religious traditions. Or even to teach Muslims from other, um, from other, you know, schools of thought within Islam, because our, our school was diverse, Sunni, Shiite, um, Christian, Jewish, as well as others. And so this is really the challenge. Until today, a lot of Islamic books and texts are written in a kind of, as if we live in a kind of silo, as if, as if Muslims live off, you know, somewhere else. And the way we write, we use language, we transliterate Arabic, transliterate, that's how you, you know, write in English letters an Arabic word, um, for our own consumption. But it's very off-putting uh, to non-Muslims. They can't understand, they don't understand the terms we're using, the way we, we, we uh, uh, translate things, they're incomprehensible, there's a lot of Arabic. Um, and so really my goal was to make a book that um, first in teaching and then writing the book out of the course because I actually wrote this book because I needed a book for my course and I could not find a book that was suitable for the kind of teaching that I that I was doing um, and so I wrote it out of the course and really tried to use a voice where I was speaking to everyone and honestly that's the world we live in now isn't it I mean we, it may have been possible uh, a few decades ago to say, well, the, this, is a, this is a Muslim community, we'll just write for the Muslims, or, um, you know, this is, we're writing for non-Muslims, but we're, we're living in a world now where, where what we write, what we say, is accessible and really should be accessible to all people. And if, if we believe something, um, or if we have a perspective, we should be able to say it in a way that uh, we're confident about it, we're honest about it, and but also where it's comprehensible to other people. So that really was the voice. And when I was writing it, I had I had about you know, it's like one of those old medieval paintings where you see someone and they have like all the you know the saints kind of kind of rayed around them. As I was writing, I had all of these different people that I was thinking, how would this sound to them? Not to change the meaning, but would they understand it? You know, so I, I thought of my, my advisor, Wadad Al-Qadi at the University of Chicago, you know, a great scholar of, of Islamic intellectual thought, uh, very rigorous with scholarship. How would it, would, how, would she find a mistake in it? Would it seem rigorous to her? How about my Christian students who are studying for the ministry? Would it be comprehensible to them? And so to bring in as many people, sort of have that audience in mind, and I think that's really important when you're writing a book, is to think about your audience. You're trying to match your voice 
and your knowledge and what you're trying to achieve and make it comprehensible to the audience. So that really was what was was my guide as I went along um, and write, in writing it. Now, uh, a lot of people have commented, as soon as the book came out, there was one comment about it that surprised me, um, which is a lot of people said, well, it's, it's, such a, it's such an interesting book because it has so many stories about women in it, or a woman's perspective, or, um, you know, Something like that. I think that some of the reviews even say, oh, it's the, you know, the first major book in the Quran from a woman's perspective in English, or something like this. I was not writing from a woman's perspective. I happen to be a woman. So I think I happen to know maybe more women in my circle of friends, my circle of teachers, the circle of scholars that I know include many women. Uh, and that's something that I that I really noticed uh, when I was ISNA president. Even um, when we would be organizing for this convention, this very convention, and we'd have the uh, program committee. So we'd sit in a room and we'd say, well, you know, let's think about some themes. And then we'd think about some themes. And then we'd say, well, on the board, let's just write the names of, of different people who we think could speak to that topic. And I remember the first year, and sitting there, you know, the name, the board filled up with the names, and all very good people. And I made the comment to my colleagues, I said, well, that's, you know, all very good people. But um, I noticed something, that our American Muslim community is approximately 50% women, 50% men, you know, maybe 49, 50, what, pretty much half-half. Our American Muslim community is 25 to 30% African American. Why is it that this board is 98% Arab and Indo-Pak men? Uh, and so then people said, well, we don't know any women scholars. We don't know many African Americans. We have, you know, Imam Saraj Wahaj. I said, well, you know, this is the problem is that we, we first go to our circle of friends, or our circle of acquaintances, and that's not enough. Right? That's not enough if we're trying to represent the community, if we're trying to engage the community, if we're trying to serve the community. You have to, so, so then, I did, we didn't really make a, a rule, but we made a kind of, of principle that we should check our speakers against the the community, and that our speakers and our leaders should generally reflect the demographics of our community. And because of that, alhamdulillah, now I heard that this convention, um, that uh, we've got some kind of like honorary mention by um, a women's organization for having uh, speakers who are Roughly 50% female and 50% male. So uh, that's a really a lot of hard work. Um, but as I say, when I was writing this book, I wasn't thinking, you know, I'm a woman, I'm going to write about women. I didn't think about that. I'm a person, you know. I'm a person like any other person, and I'm, I'm writing from my knowledge and my experience. But I happen to, to, to know some very interesting stories uh, about women. And um, so they made it into the book. And uh, uh, 
You know, I did try with some other voices to really look for scholars. I tried to look for scholars, for example, or Shiite perspectives, or other perspectives to be inclusive. Um, so that was part of it, because if I'm talking about the Qur'an, and really my, my aim was, it was called the story of the Qur'an, was to show how, what Muslims believe about the Qur'an, how we engage with the Qur'an, the diversity of perspectives, and how the Qur'an really just lights, you know, lights up the life of so many Muslims in, in all different ways. So I was trying to shift perspectives throughout the book. Um, and in that, it was important that I listened to people. I listened to their stories, I was able to sit there, and I think for many people, some of the most compelling part of it are the stories. And I'll just read a little passage for, for a story that frames um, a major chapter of my book, which is about the transmission of the Qur'an uh, as a text. And I was fortunate when I lived in Chicago that uh, I was very good friends with a, with a family who were devoted to making sure that uh, their children had the opportunity to study the Qur'an at a very deep level. Um, and there was a wonderful young woman, she was very young then, she was 12, 14 years old, who was deeply dedicated to learning the Qur'an with Tajweed, um, uh, being certified in it, having an ijazah in it, and being able to, uh, to continually memorize the Qur'an. And so I was at the party, a party in Chicago one time when she came back with her ijazah after a, a summer of studying the Qur'an um, and getting her ijazah in Tajweed in, in Damascus, Syria. Um, and ijazah through the great uh, scholar of the Qur'an, Shaykh Muhyiddin al-Qurdi, may Allah have mercy on his soul. Um, and so she was able to do that, and I was at the party where beautiful celebration, it was like we were, we were having a party for a bride, um, where, where everyone gathered and sang songs and served food and danced, and all women to, to celebrate this beautiful part of her life, and that's something that I think we also need more stories about, and and more uh, actually a reality in our life, which is this is to celebrate the beautiful things in our life, and to really bring back ritual um, in related to the Quran. So Reem, uh, I interviewed Reem, and I tried to get a lot of details about not only the process of memorizing, the process of of um, being tested, um, but, but her whole feeling and the atmosphere around it. And it was her, I took her, I got a copy of her ijazah, I translated it into English, I made a chain, and then I went, and this is where I really used my University of Chicago research methodology, and went through each scholar in the chain one at a time, and spent many months researching each scholar, getting their biographies, um, and, and, and then once I had a lot of information, taking, taking stories about some of those people throughout history, some of those scholars throughout history, to try to show um, really the living tradition of this. But I want to read you just this little part um, that Reem described me when she, um, she was in her last summer, when she was really at the final part where she was being tested. So uh, among her teachers, so we have Sheikh Qurdi, and then Sheikh Qurdi has you know, whole many, many different um, circles, uh, many different scholars who he certified, 
uh, who are designated to work with uh, the different women. So she had, uh, uh, she had at the, the, the highest scholar, female scholar at that time was Dr. Gaid, and she had a daughter, Hada, and both of them were um, certified in the 10 different Qira'at of the Qur'an, the 10 different recitations of the Qur'an. So uh, I'll begin here. For three summers, Madam Hada worked with Reem, teaching and testing her on her tajweed, memorization, and comprehension. Through a rigorous process of examination called probing, Reem's memorization was verified again and again. The teacher meticulously documented her progress, writing the date and outcome of each test in a special notebook. Finally, when she was confident that Reem was ready, she took her to another woman who had been appointed by the Sheikh to administer a final test to female students before they could be brought to him for certification. This woman, who happened to be Madame Hannah's mother, had been certified as a comprehensive reciter. By the Sheikh. This meant that she had mastered not just one recitation of the Quran, but all ten Orthodox recitations. Astonishingly, she had achieved this highest level of mastery of the Quran while also earning a doctoral degree in mathematics and pursuing an academic career. And may Allah have mercy on her. She also passed away a few years ago. Dr. Dad pushed Reem hard on her memorization and recitation. She verified that Irene had completely mastered the text as well as the rules of Tejweed. But she also counseled her to prepare spiritually and mentally for the short time she would have with the Sheikh to prove herself. In the end, success comes from God, and even an accomplished reciter could find herself faltering if she had been negligent in attending to her religious duties and spiritual state before the test. Finally, when Reem was ready, she was taken to the house where she would be tested. When she arrived, Reem found a number of girls sitting in a plain room, awaiting their examination. Reem watched as the girls, one by one, approached a curtain, behind which sat the shade. Sometimes, a gap in the fabric allowed them to catch a glimpse of the elderly man seated on a daybed, alert but obviously weak. Reem knew that the curtain served to protect the dignity of the frail scholar as much as it preserved traditional norms of modest interaction between men and women. Nevertheless, she sympathized with the girl who, upon completing her recitation, pulled open the drapes and said, Oh shit, I just want to see you. So, to me, I mean, this was just a fascinating story. It was a combination of being able, you know, being able to tell the story of how the Qur'an has been preserved over 1400 years. And Reem in her, as I show in this, um, uh, in the chain of transmission, that she is the 29th person in a chain. And every single person in the chain is known. And I was able to find them in the University of Chicago Library, which is extraordinary. And through a lot of hard work, but they're there. And even she didn't know much about the scholars in the chain. You know, that wasn't part of the education, so I was able to inform her about uh, some of the people who she actually has in her chain of transmission. But to me, linking that, linking that scholarship with the story of a real person, I mean, because in the end, why does it matter? You know, it matters because it matters to Muslims. Because this is, 
this is the most precious part of RSM, you know, is the Quran. This is the, the rock upon which we, we build, you know, our religion, and we return to again and, to, and again. So to know both the story of the text itself, how it's been, how it's been preserved and retained, but also what it means to people, how it lines up people's lives, and that's what I go on and continue to tell in the book and talk about the Quran and its relationship to healing and illness and rituals around death and mourning, um, the relationship to law. Why, if we have, you know, one of the problems is, uh, I mean, not a problem, but I would say that a lot of Muslims will say, well, you know, we have the Quran, so it's, it's, we're much better off than Christians who don't have the original copy of the Bible. And that's true, we do have the Quran to refer to. At the same time, you can never take out the human element in interpretation. The Quran needs to be interpreted. And I tell the story in uh, a later chapter of Sayyidina Ali ibn Abi Talib, who says this to the Khawarij when he's arguing with them. Because the Khawarij say, we, we will go by the judgment of God. And we have the Quran. Let's just go by the judgment of the Quran. And Sayyidina Ali says, this Quran is a book between covers. It does not speak, we have to speak for it. Which means that there is always a human element in interpretation. Um, and so anyone who says, no, what I'm telling you is just what the Quran says, or what, what Islam says even, um, we should always push back a little bit and say, well, that's your understanding. And I try in chapter five to give a lot of the, you know, the reasons why there are many different interpretations based on language, on grammar, on historical context, on different theological understandings of the role of reason, of the role of conscience in the interpretation of the Qur'an. And I hope that by the, by the end, you know, once a Muslim has read this book, one result I, I hope that it leads to is more tolerance among us about the diversity of Islam, the diversity of Islamic thought, and why it's possible for good, reasonable Muslims to come to different conclusions about what the Qur'an really means. We know what the Qur'an says, but what does it mean when the Qur'an says, you know, what does the Qur'an mean when the Qur'an says something? Finally, and I'll close up with this, um, I, I wrote the first edition, then of course with the second edition, of course there were, you know, errors and, and, and typos and things to correct. But I also decided in the second edition, I, I made a few, uh, uh, I added a few things, and in particular, I added a case study at the end of chapter five. And this case study, um, I thought was particularly, I think it's chapter five, uh, I thought was particularly important um, so that we could really see in action how different, why different people could interpret a, a critical verse of the Qur'an in radically different ways. And this is the verse from Surah Nisa um, 34, the so-called beating verse, or however you want to interpret it. And so I go, I, I give a, an extensive, um, I mean for this book, you know, it's, it's not that extensive, but a fairly extensive review of the different positions um, that scholars give what this verse means and why they can arrive at different positions. 
And that way, it can start to bring the, you know, the non-specialist, give it some understanding of how scholarly interpretation works and why it's not as simple as it, as it seems. And that people who have a, for lack of a better word, a fundamentalist interpretation, I would say by fundamentalist interpretation, what I mean by that is, is taking um, verses of the Quran um, and removing them from the context of the rest of the Quran, of the goals of the Quran, of the values and principles of the Quran, much less the context that the Prophet Muhammad lived in, the context of 7th century Arabia. So those people who say, well, the Quran just says this, this is what the Quran says it means, are really doing a disservice to, um, to how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the Quran to the community of the Prophet Muhammad and how Muslims for many generations after, you know, really struggled to find how, how do we deal with sections of the Qur'an that clearly are, are speaking about something that was happening actually during the time of the Prophet Muhammad whether it was a battle, a particular battle, you know, talking about the mushrikun, or dealing with a particular person. I mean, what is the lesson that we learn if we only take a literal, uh, decontextualized interpretation? Why would Abu Jahl be in the Qur'an? Abu Jahl is dead you know, a long time ago. What can we learn from what the Qur'an says about Abu Jahl? What can we learn about what the Qur'an says about Al-Mujadila? Al-Mujadila, who was honored by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Qur'an with, with this title, the woman who, who disputes, the disputative or argumentative woman. Given that the practice that was abrogated or that was abolished by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with the revelation of the, the first passage of Al-Mujadila, which was the practice of Zihad, given that no one does that anymore, you know, what can we learn from that? And this is why we really need to understand the Qur'an in its fullness, its principles, its values, and what impact, what impact those revelations made on the people, and, and try to reconnect with that, so that the Qur'an is also, for us, not just, you know, some people say, if you contextualize the Qur'an, you're making the Qur'an a historical document. To the contrary, if you don't contextualize the Qur'an, then you're making it history. It is by contextualizing the Qur'an that we can understand the values, the principles, the impact, and how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks to humanity, and how we should try to reflect that responsiveness that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has um, when he spoke to the community of Muhammad and to all of us later. So with that, I'll end and um, uh, let Hattie come